The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California legislature. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, Lloyd, today we are going to talk about a variety of privacy issues, but basically all dealing with individual liberty and and that's so important to us to keep our democracy and i want to tell everyone that we are just so thrilled to have mike matthew feeney who is a policy analyst at the cato institute where he works on issues concerning the intersection of new technologies and civil liberties and before coming to cato Matthew worked at Reason Magazine as an assistant editor of Reason.com, and he also worked at the American Conservative, the Liberal at Democrats, and the Institute of Economic Affairs. His writings have appeared in the Washington Post, the Huff, Huff Post, the Hill, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Washington Examiner, City AM, and others. He received both his MA and his BA in philosophy from the University of Reading. You can find out more about him and Cato Organization, which we're going to find out a little bit about again, um, at Cato, that's C-A-T-O dot org. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us from the East Coast. No, well, thank you very much for having me. Well, first of all, I love your accent, and everybody will get a kick out of it. It's a it's a mixture of... Uh, you said New Jersey, Wisconsin, and England, so it's great. It's just great. And um, but you don't say Wisconsin, do you? <laughs> no, I guess I left. Uh, I was young when I left, and I guess I didn't stay long enough to pick that up. Right. Uh, hopefully, I didn't pick it up. I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, so uh, I know what that's like. So, you know, before we start talking about some of these really important issues, maybe we should explain a little bit about what the Cato Institute is and why you wanted to be with them. Yeah, so the Cato Institute is a libertarian think tank based in Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, me and my colleagues deal with a whole host of policy issues, so we conduct research ranging from education, healthcare, economic issues, but also the issues that I work on primarily, which are uh, criminal justice, civil liberties, uh, and privacy. And I, I knew about the Cato Institute for years uh, before coming here, uh, although uh, before getting the job at, at Cato, I worked uh, in journalism for a couple of years, uh, but I've been at Cato now oh, since May 2014. 
Well, they're really lucky to have you. So let's talk about some of the issues that are really out there now that we're reading about. One of them is body cameras. We're talking about police wearing body cameras, and they're actually doing that out here in Orange County. Um, So let's talk about the privacy issues associated with body cameras. And basically, you know, um, it is that really a good thing? And do we want to have police hold be held accountable by while protecting privacy? How do we want to deal with that? Yeah, so I think uh, you and your listeners will remember that there was a a lot of discussion about body cameras uh, in the wake of the events in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, following the the shooting of Michael Brown. And I, I think it's intuitive that a lot of us think that body cameras are a good tool for police accountability. And I'm certainly in that camp, but I also think that uh, we shouldn't rush to outfit every officer with body cameras without good privacy policies in place, because we have to remember that police are often dealing with people who are having very bad days, um, oftentimes the worst days of their life. Uh, and they, they are talking to children who have been sexually assaulted or they're arriving at gruesome accidents, they're going inside people's homes. So when we uh, are talking about body cameras, we should try and make sure that we have policies that balance uh, the accountability that they can provide, but also uh, policies that protect privacy. You know, yeah, I I don't think many uh, police organizations are really focusing on that, are they? Well, I think there's a wide diversity of uh, body camera policies out there. Uh, You know, there are about 18,000 law enforcement agencies in this country, uh, and they all are governed by different rules. Uh, and, and, and many uh, police departments are, I think, very wary of the privacy concerns, but there's also uh, pressure from uh, the public to outfit their offices with body cameras. Body cameras are overwhelmingly popular among uh, racial and political demographics, and I don't think that's a surprise, especially given the publicity that uh, officer-involved shootings caught on camera have uh, received. But I, I think there is actually a way to make sure that we can balance accountability and privacy when talking about body cameras. Uh, I, I, for instance, have proposed that uh, if body cameras fill in, film an area where uh, we could expect privacy, such as inside our home, that you know maybe the public shouldn't have access to that and just watch it on uh, YouTube, but at least I and my attorney should be able to see it. Uh, and that way, I think, uh, is, is one way that we can try and make sure that we uh, hold police accountable while also protecting privacy. Yeah. So have you uh, uh, actually proposed certain privacy policies that maybe law enforcement agencies can look to as a best practice? Yeah, I wrote a uh, paper for the Cato Institute outlining uh, my own uh, policies regarding uh, body cameras. And I think... uh, briefly, uh, that we can protect privacy by making sure that there is uh, footage available to uh, members of the public if the body camera footage is filming an area uh, where there isn't an expectation of privacy. So if uh, if it's footage of a protest that's outside uh, or on a street, something like that. But if the body camera is filming uh, a bedroom, you know, if it's a SWAT raid and the officers are wearing body cameras and they're in the home and there's an allegation of misconduct, then the residents of that property uh, and their attorney should be able to access the footage. But I don't think that kind of footage should be uh, subject to you or me just requesting the footage. Uh, I think we need to make sure that 
uh, when police are dealing with uh, the intimate details of someone's home that that isn't just available uh, on the internet for everyone to look at. Because, mm. of course, our bedrooms and our living rooms can reveal very private information that we're trying to sometimes conceal, uh, details about our personal lives, our religious affiliations, uh, books we're reading, all that kind of stuff. Right, right. So basically in public places, you know, we've got people with cell phone cameras that can take pictures of things as well. So I, mm-hmm. would, and I would think that law enforcement at least would like to be able to have their own films of these public places, even though someone else might be looking at it from another angle and not see what the police is saying, you know, and what they're yes, seeing. Yeah. Uh, yes, and you know, I don't want to, of course, uh, imply that we don't have privacy concerns out in public, right? Uh, if, if the right policies aren't in place, body cameras could certainly become a tool for police surveillance. Right. Uh, and in order to stop that, you know, I do think that footage that doesn't show an arrest or a detention or a use of force should be deleted re- uh, relatively quickly. I, right. I think the last thing we want is police looking through footage of First Amendment protected activities such as protests. Uh, to identify participants. You don't want uh, law-abiding citizens to stifle their own speech because of body cameras. That would be very unfortunate. Right. You want to have some limitations on that. And, of course, like you said, when this stuff needs to be deleted, (laughs) the Mm -hmm. right to delete. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk a little bit about drones. My husband is just ordered a drone. This is his birthday Christmas present and he's all excited to have it hopefully when we go on vacation to take scenery pictures so what are some of the privacy issues with drones well uh i think when many people think about drones they're thinking about well people like uh you and your husband who have hobby drones that they can use to take pictures uh but they are also uh, an increasingly uh, popular tool for law enforcement they're still comparatively rare uh but i think As the technology improves, we should expect to see police departments using drones more and more. And I I think that the privacy concerns here are uh, rather rather more stark, perhaps, than body camera privacy issues. Because, uh, you know, our activities observed from the air uh, can be quite revealing. Uh, We live at a time, of course, where airplanes are very common, but they're very, very high and moving at high speeds. Uh, But police drones... If they're, they're low and over our backyards, they could see uh, who we have over for a barbecue. They could see us swimming in pools. Uh, they could perhaps even see who we have over for dinner. Uh, and, and despite all that, I can see why they might be attractive law enforcement tools. Would they be good for uh, trying to search for a, a fleeing suspect, for example? But uh, again, uh, we need to try and figure out a way to allow police to use new technologies while protecting privacy. Uh, and that was actually uh, another paper I wrote at Cato where I outlined a few uh, uh, policies that I think would help. Uh, I, I basically think that if, if you want to conduct something that you or I would consider a search, which might not be what uh, many courts today consider a search, that uh, there should be some kind of warrant requirement. Yes. Uh, a few states have imposed that, but that's certainly not a uh, Supreme Court doctrine at this point. Right. Yeah, I had uh, seen actually some articles about how some of these police were taking movies of people just sunbathing nude in their backyard. So, I mean, Mm. that's an invasion of privacy. But how about 
you know, you're talking about government doing it, but what about people using drones? I understand that there are some drones that are very, very tiny, you know, the size of insects. What about that kind of privacy? And what kind of uh, policies and laws do we have or should we have about these tiny drones that can come up to my window and look in at my window or my bedroom? Yeah, so I, I, there is obviously a, a concern with uh, tiny snooping uh, cameras flying up to uh, our living room or bedroom windows. And uh, as, as drone technology improves, I think we should expect uh, these uh, devices to get smaller and smaller. Uh, that said, I don't think that new technology like this necessarily needs new rules. I think uh, that we already have pretty good uh, peeping Tom uh, statutes in place. Uh, you know, there, there are laws against using Zoom cameras to take pictures of uh, people uh, in the in their bedrooms or bathrooms. Uh, and so, I think we don't necessarily need a a new drone uh, snooping law per se. Uh, but it's something that I think people should be aware of. Yeah, yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about facial recognition. These are uh, there's a lot of privacy. You know. Concerns. If I'm at, like you were talking about, if I'm at a protest or I'm at, even at a rally or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, that someone can then have uh, use that facial rec- recognition in some other way and capture that. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the upsides and the downsides of facial rec- recognition technology. Well, so the the upsides, I think many of your uh, listeners will probably remember the recent news related to the new iPhone, uh, which you can you know open with your face. Uh, your face is uh, is unique, and uh, there, there are interesting things that could be done uh, with facial recognition, not just from unlocking phones, but maybe even uh, buying train tickets or boarding boarding an airplane, buying. Uh, buying goods from cafes, and that that's all quite you know cool and neat and interesting. But there are, I think, very significant privacy concerns here. Uh, half of American adults are already in some kind of facial recognition database, even though half of American adults uh, are certainly not criminals. Uh, this is thanks to the fact that many states volunteer their DMV facial images to law enforcement, mm. uh, and I think that is uh, that's very concerning, especially. Uh, when you consider the fact that this kind of technology in the not-too-distant future will, I'm sure, be merged with body camera technology, uh, drone camera technology, which really will give the uh, police the ability, if if there aren't privacy protections in place, to identify uh, someone uh, at a distance who hasn't necessarily done anything wrong. Uh, and, you know, that, that, that I think is, is a concern and, and raises similar issues that we just discussed with body cameras. Uh, how, how likely are people going to be to go about their ordinary business if they know that every police officer they see just knows who they are in virtue of the fact that they don't have a mask on? Right, right. People might say, well, if I didn't do anything wrong, what do I care? So why should they care? Well, this is a very common refrain that you'll hear in privacy debates. Well, right. uh, I'm, I haven't done anything wrong, so I don't, I don't care. Uh, but the fact is, I think we all do things uh, all the time that are totally legal that we don't necessarily want uh, the police to know about. Uh, for When I'm at home, uh, I don't uh, engage in uh, illegal activity, but that doesn't mean I want a camera in my living room. Uh, it, we, you know, privacy isn't something that, it, it's not just a value that guilty people uh, hold dear. Uh, law, 
law-abiding people deserve privacy. And we should also keep in mind that at the moment, uh, you know, Islamic extremists are, are a prime target of law enforcement, but that hasn't always been the case. Uh, a wide, wide range of groups have been the subject of government surveillance from uh, feminists, socialists, civil rights leaders, uh, Quakers, focusing. It's been a, a, a wide a ranging group of people and no one knows who's next. Uh, so it might be the case that you're not doing anything wrong now, but uh, who knows what uh, future governments would define as wrong and who knows if you'll be in that group of uh, of criminals when the definition changes. Exactly. I mean, if we think about Nazi Germany, right? Uh, that's a, a wonderful example of just, you know, they had databases to find out, you know, who were homosexuals, who were Jews, who were you know, any gypsies or whatever they wanted to say were then illegal. So, yeah, I think it's very, very important. Someone who has a religion that is other than what somebody in government says they should have uh, could then target them and discriminate against them or do worse, right? So Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And, and this isn't, uh, I, I think this affects uh, everyone on the political spectrum. Uh, if you're on the left or the right or somewhere in between, uh, I don't know if in 30 years, if, uh, you know, people who are pro-life will be considered a great law enforcement threat or people who are pro-choice, uh, gun owners, uh, Catholics, uh, atheists, even, you know, you, it's impossible to predict really. Uh, so for that reason, I think everyone should uh, should be concerned uh, regardless of whether they are a target at the moment. Right. So are, what's happening in Congress about protecting those privacy issues of facial recognition? Is there anything that's coming up or in any states? So it's, uh, at least on the national level, uh, it's, it's been somewhat distressing to see the lack of uh, regulation. Uh, I would recommend that all of your Listeners read a study called The Perpetual Lineup, which was published by researchers at Georgetown Law, which really does a very good job of cataloging uh, not only the extent to which facial recognition is affecting uh, millions of innocent Americans, but also the, the lack of uh, restrictions here. Uh, you, you will know, of course, uh, that uh, privacy debates at the moment really hinge on what's called a, a reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, and, it, and it's not clear that you enjoy a reasonable expectation of privacy to your identity when you're walking out in public. Right. Uh, and so it's, it's going to, you know, it's something that lawmakers uh, are going to have to tackle because uh, Supreme Court precedent isn't particularly reassuring on this point. Right, right. If you're in plain view of everybody, then they're going to say, well, you know, you don't have an expectation of privacy. So we really need to look at if when they hone in on your biometric features, is that going to be um, a, a violation of your expectation of privacy? It's uh, it's crazy. So, so what, yeah, what about, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I don't want to come across here as uh, some kind of technophobe. I'm not right. saying that, you know, we should put facial recognition technology back in the box it came from, uh, what I'm, I would, so my, my solution would look something like the following, which is, well, uh, law enforcement can have access uh, to facial recognition, but the data should only be related to wanted suspects, uh, people that uh, the police have a legitimate uh, reason 
uh, to look for. Uh, you know, that I have no objection to police officers uh, you know, taking a look at the 10 most wanted list on the way out of the station and keeping an eye out for people. And facial, facial right. recognition as a way to make that easier, I have nothing uh, right, right. wrong with. Uh, it's, it's innocent people that uh, I think should be protected. Right. And so when we're talking about biometric information, we're talking about our facial scan, our fingerprints, mm-hmm. our even um, even our D- DNA, right? Mm-hmm. So, yes. you know, uh, I mean, yep. that's kind of a scary one, too. I, I always worry about if someone is collecting your DNA and you don't know about it, I know that that's what they're, they're collecting blood from every baby, you know, at least in California, which kind of scares me because then they can get the DNA from every baby. And let's talk about the privacy concerns about DNA. Yeah, DNA is a, uh, a obviously a very revealing piece of information. Um, and, and it's actually a piece of, you know, with DNA, the government can oftentimes find out information potentially that uh, you might not even have known about yourself. Um, yeah, DNA analysis can reveal if you're carrying uh, certain uh, traits that you might not know about, uh, but it's also quite good at identifying you, which is why law enforcement quite like it. Yes. Uh, the the problem is, though, that uh, you, you don't want a situation where it becomes normal for uh, innocent people to be in some kind of database like this. So similarly to facial recognition, if, if, if it's, if it's uh, only constrained to wanted suspects or people with a history of violent crime, then uh, my concerns are somewhat diminished. But I I, I would be very worried in a situation where uh, it becomes required to hand over DNA if you've done nothing wrong. Right. And I I don't even like it if if you're just first arrested and you haven't been really charged, you know, with anything, or you haven't been convicted that they keep that DNA. You know, that's a little bit, if you're an innocent person and you were arrested by mistake, and then they keep that DNA... That's that's a little bit scary as well. And then, of course, having, you know, my son wanted me to um, give my DNA on a swab so that we could find out about our, you know, our ancestors. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't do it. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't do mm. it. And then even if he does it, I'm going to have that's, you know, that exposes me. I'm, I'm worried about these commercial entities that collect and share and sell our information. Isn't that a privacy concern? Well, yeah, and, and that reminds me of the kind of issues we discussed relating to facial recognition, that there are kind of, you know, obviously neat applications of this technology. You know, it is uh, interesting that people can look into their ancestry uh, or to submit DNA to see if they're carrying diseases they might not know about. And, and of course, uh, more and more people handing over DNA samples can contribute to valuable medical uh, research, but there need to be good privacy policies in place to ensure that it's not uh, you know, being shared with law enforcement without uh, warrants or other uh, judicial safeguards in place. Uh, that it would be it would be very concerning if uh, those companies were handing over uh, this this data uh, to law enforcement. I, I'm not aware without of that. Without a warrant, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm not aware of that, uh, but but it's a worthwhile thing to be concerned about. That's that's for sure. Well, what about if they share it with insurance companies, life insurance companies, um, mortgage companies? 
you know, if someone believes that because I've got a certain DNA that maybe they shouldn't give me a loan, maybe I shouldn't be able to get a home, maybe I shouldn't be able to get an apartment, maybe I can't, maybe I'm going to get sick, maybe I shouldn't be able to get certain life insurance, you know, I mean, that's, that's another issue of how it might be sold commercially that could hurt us, right? Yeah, uh, that that certainly is something uh, that could happen. I, I haven't read the uh, so the the twenty three and Me uh, privacy policies in detail. I, I would be very interested to see if the, there have been cases of that happening. Uh, and if so, uh, you know, it's uh, it it raises the, the the exact kind of issues that you've just outlined. Yeah, yeah. So, um, what do we know about the surveillance equipment, really, that pol- that police are using? Do we know much about that? Well, it does uh, it, it does vary, but I would say that we don't know as much as I think we should about the kind of tools that uh, police are using to conduct surveillance. Uh, some some notable stories uh, I think really uh, drive this point home. Uh, your your listeners might remember that last year it was revealed that uh, police in Baltimore had been using uh, persistent surveillance aerial uh, equipment. Uh, having uh, basically a piece of technology that allows police to have what the developer of this technology called Google Earth with TiVo. You can just fly above a city uh, and uh, the police could say, hey, we've had a robbery at 123 Main Street, uh, and you can rewind and fast forward to see where the suspect lived or went. Uh, But this was done without the knowledge of very key Baltimore officials, uh, and and it was it wasn't uh, revealed uh, to the public uh, uh, until after it had been happening, uh, which I think is very very concerning. Uh, New Yorker, uh, the NYPD is uh, notoriously quite uh, quite hesitant to discuss the kind of surveillance equipment they use, and and this is uh, I think a, a real concern because surveillance equipment is becoming increasingly intrusive and in gathering information on innocent citizens. Uh, you, you might know about devices, for example, called stingrays. These are uh, devices that mimic cell towers and suck up uh, all of your uh, cell phone uh, metadata uh, without you knowing about it. Uh, mm-hmm. So all of that, is, and, and this is the kind of stuff that I really do think should be discussed out in the open, uh, that the public should have uh, some kind of role uh, or at least have a view uh, when police are considering Uh, expanding their surveillance capabilities. I think it gets back to having a warrant for any kind. That's a search, right? Isn't, doesn't the fourth amendment say that we should be free from, you know, unreasonable searches and seizures? Isn't that seizing and searching our information? Well, yeah, I I think uh, anyone reading the text of the fourth amendment would be forgiven for thinking that is uh, what it says. Uh, the, The problem is that, over the last 50 years in particular, the Supreme Court has really uh, redefined especially the term search. So it doesn't mean what I think most people think it means. Uh, when, when you or I say search, most people think, oh, that means to uncover something or to look for. But uh, for the last 50 years, it's meant to violate a reasonable expectation of privacy. And uh, thanks to Supreme Court cases uh, over the last few decades, uh, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy to uh, telephone metadata because you have, quote, voluntarily uh, handed over that information to AT&T or Verizon or whoever. Uh, so As if you had a choice, right? 
Right, right. So uh, it's it's a uh, sad state of affairs, but it's uh, what we're stuck with at the moment. Uh, yeah, I mean, we we learned a lot from Donald Snowden too. So, anyway, we are just about out of time. So, if you could just give your website and where we can find out more about the Cato Institute, that would be great. Yeah, you can check out uh, my work and work that my colleagues do at Cato.org, which is C-A-T-O.org. Well, terrific. Keep up the great work. And we're going to have to have you back again since there's so much going on in with privacy and individual liberty. So thank you, and we will talk to you again soon. Okay? No, thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org and the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at privacypiracy.org. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.